Pray with me, Father in heaven, now we come to hear your word. We pray you would take us, take completely each one of us into you. I pray most especially you take first our minds that we may think your thoughts after you. Take our hearts that all of this would penetrate to permeate our whole being. And thus our lives would show themselves to be yours and yours alone. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read the first two verses uh, and then verse 7. Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hear the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Then verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness. That comes by faith. We're to live by faith. And we've been asking uh, the question, I think, that the author of Hebrews both asks and answers, and that is, what does it really mean to live by faith? We've seen the illustration of Abel as he brought his sacrifice by faith. We've We've seen the example of Enoch as he's lived by faith and thus walked with God. And now today it's the faith of Noah. So we come asking, what does Noah's life lead us to understand about living by faith, you know the situation of Noah. If you'll turn back to Genesis in chapter 6, we won't spend a lot of time reading there, but you may want to have your thumb there just to look at that. And that's the, the situation with Noah. You know all the context here. As always, we go back to Genesis 3.15. Anytime I open Genesis, I go creation, fall. God made, instructed, commanded Adam and Eve sinned. Then the promise, the promise of one who will come from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And thus the question from there on is, who is he? And and when he's going to come? And and how is he going to come? And so then as these genealogies are laid out, these lines of people are lined out uh, in the book of Genesis, we look at each one to think, is it this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? Is this the one to come? And we see the line of Cain, the firstborn of of Adam and Eve. And of course, there was a warring group. We see the sin there. We say, no, it's not going to come there. Then uh, obviously not Abel because he died at the hand of his brother. But Seth, who is the replacement for Abel, uh, we know as we come all the way to the New Testament that that's the line from which the Messiah would come, this very one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so we can read back through it and watch that line as it develops. Uh, We see some godliness in that line, for instance, with with Enoch, but still uh, the rebellion of people ruled the day. We come then to a situation where God realizes and and says even, you'll notice in verse 3 of chapter 6 in Genesis, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years, uh, meaning that that, uh, that in 120 years from that point, God's going to do something, uh, and what he's going to do is bring this flood we know as judgment against God. 
mankind. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made him. And so Moses, in describing the very heart of God, uses human emotion so that we can come to, to some understanding about God, that, that, that sin isn't just something that he takes lightly, that it, it does in fact grieve him. And, and this was no surprise to God, obviously. This is all in his plan. But still at the moment to explain the, the heart of God, to say that he was sorry, that he was grieved, that the condition of humanity at that point in time, he would redeem, but at the moment he's grieved. And he says, therefore, I'm going to blot them out. Uh, but then verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, that Noah received grace from God, that he found favor, he received grace from God. Um, and it wasn't that he deserved it, because favor, God's favor, God's grace is always undeserved. But Noah lived in a state of grace. God chose him to be a recipient of his unmerited favor. And then we see in verse 11, or verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now when it says that he was righteous and that he was blameless, it doesn't mean that he was sinless, obviously. None of us is sinless. But what it means is that he was a man because the grace of God was upon him. That came first. The grace of God was upon him. That's verse 8. Then verse 9 talks about how that grace was evidenced in Noah's life. It was evidenced by righteousness. That is, he was declared right with God and blameless in his generation, meaning that he walked in such a way with integrity before God that if you looked at Noah, you would say he believes in God. He trusts God. He belongs to God. And so he lived with that kind of integrity and sincerity of heart before God that can only be described as, as it was described of Enoch, that he walked with God in humility and submission and obedience and reverence and worship, faith in God. This man upon whom God's grace had come. Then verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so, as Noah's listening to what God is saying to him, he's basically at this point saying, No, I'm going to destroy everybody. I don't know how many gulps... Noah took at that moment in time. But you know, that's all he knew at this moment, that God was going to destroy everybody. And then in verse 14, he makes this statement, God does, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, that's about 450 feet. Its breadth, 50 cubits, at about 75 feet. Its height, 30 cubits, which is about 45 feet. So we're looking at something as long as a football field and a half. Right? It's approximately 100 and, um, I'm sorry, 450 feet. That's not just one. Yes, that would be yards. So that would be one football field and a half. And then 75 feet high, or feet wide, 45 feet high, about three stories. It says, make a roof of the ark and finish it uh, to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. 
make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17, For for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And so he realizes at that point that he and his family will be saved from this judgment flood by way of this ark. He receives uh, grace from God. Now what's noteworthy here, at least for the author of Hebrews, as he's developing this path of what it means to live by faith, is the fact that Noah had faith in God. What's commendable about Noah, what's noteworthy, what we're to remember about him, is that he was a man of faith. And so the question is, how did that, how did that live out in Noah's life? How did that manifest itself in Noah's life? What can we learn from Noah in terms of this living by faith? He certainly lived by faith. What's that to say uh, about us? Well, first of all, you remember that Hebrews 11.1 1 says that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that was precisely the way Noah needed to live his life. He was told by God that a flood was going to come upon the earth. And we know that there was a delay in that coming of the flood. Uh, When God first comes to Genesis chapter 6 and speaks about the violence and the sin of humanity, he says that it's going to be 120 years. So we don't know exactly when he came upon Noah, but if it was close to that time, we're looking at over 100 years that this flood was going to be delayed. God said it's going to come, but, but, but you don't see it. And Noah was going to have to live his life around the fact that God had said a flood is going to come. We don't know that there were any indications of changes in weather weather patterns that would give him the impression, oh yeah, there's more clouds today than normal, and I see a cloudiness developing, and therefore uh, it's likely that a flood is going to come. It's just we don't have any indication there was anything like that. The only indication that would give Noah the impression that a judgment was going to come was because he could see the unrighteousness of people. And so it didn't defy logic. It didn't defy justice that a flood was going to come. But he had no other indication. He was living by faith. That is, he had a conviction that that which was unseen was real and was true. He didn't have any indication from the people of his day, the way Jesus put it as he makes commentary on those in Noah's day. He said this, For as in those days before the flood They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So Jesus was saying, listen, there wasn't anybody in in Noah's day who agreed with him. He was it. He was the only one who thought this, perhaps his wife, perhaps his family, because they were going to go with him and perhaps he was able to convince them. Perhaps God did in some way. But the truth is that all of, of Noah's neighbors must have thought he was crazy for building this big ship. He didn't even seem to be close to any water, any big ocean in which to put this big ship. 
So they wouldn't have been any indication either that perhaps this is coming. No one agreed with him. Nobody affirmed all, any of that uh, to him. Very little sympathy. And that's this quote that I read during our offering time. The far-off flood was more real to Noah than the shows of life around him. Uh, therefore, he could stand all the insults and gave himself to a course of life which was sheer folly unless that future was real. Faith is the conviction of things unseen. To remember, a month ago, when we were talking about Hebrews 11.1, 1, I quoted from the King James Version of that particular verse. It's translation. And I said that that version has it that faith... Uh, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I said the amazing thing about faith is that it provides evidence for us. It sort of brings that which is future so real to us that we live in the present on the basis of the reality of what's coming in the future. I mean, it's that real to us that it's unshakable. And you get the sense that if you would have walked up to Noah on any particular day, a hundred years before the flood, and asked him what the weather was going to be like, he'd say, it's going to flood. I mean, it was that real to him. And when he got up in the morning, he's thinking, flood, how do we deal with flood? Because it's that real to him. It's so unshakable in the course of his life. He's living according to things that you can't see, that aren't evident with the eye, but he knows they're really really true and he orders his whole life around that not only was Noah convinced that a flood was coming that a judgment from God was coming by way of flood but he was convinced that he and his family would be saved by that ark God had said build it gave him all the specs said build it and when this flood comes get in it and you and your family uh, will be saved. We don't have any indication that Noah was a shipbuilder by trade. We don't have any indication that he knew anything about any of that. He trusted God and he built it according to the specifications because he was convinced that that ark would save him and that ark would save not only himself but also his wife and his children and their wives as well. He lived by faith. I can't help but think about our life in Christ. We know that judgment is coming. We don't necessarily see it because if you look out into our world and you find people who don't believe in God, who live unashamedly unrighteous lives, it seems like they're doing just fine. It doesn't seem at all that they're being judged. In fact, some days I can take the saintliest Christian I know and compare their lives with someone quite unsaintly. <laughs> and I think the unsaintly person has it better on that particular day. It doesn't seem like judgment's happening in the midst of that. And, and there does seem to be a rather long delay. God has been talking about judgment a long time. Jesus spoke about it, in fact, in this passage in Matthew chapter 24 that I read where he's talking about the days of Noah. They, they could be quite like our days. Nobody really expects judgment in our day except us. But nobody really expects judgment, not God's judgment uh, in our day. And there's been a rather long delay 
You remember, Peter speaks of that. He says, scoffers will come. This was in Peter's day. And say, where is this coming? You, but you Christians, you've been talking about his coming now for 30 years. And still it hasn't come. Well, those same scoffers exist today, except now they say, you've been talking about this judgment for almost 2,000 years. And it hasn't come. And, and, but yet we know that it's coming. Jesus spoke of such a delay. He spoke of that in parables, parables that he has with a punchline in, 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 in verse in chapter 24 of Matthew. He says, therefore, stay awake. Verse 42. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So he's saying, you need to be ready. Because we do have a situation here that Jesus is preparing them and he's going to leave. And then he's going to come back. And when he comes back is the time of this judgment. Verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him, My master is delayed and begins to to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's no different than the message that God brought to Noah. It's the same thing. And it's no different for us. We're not building an ark. It's a good thing, I suppose. We're not building an ark. But we know the judgment is coming. We're just as certain of it as Noah was certain of it. And you see, the the nice thing, at least in my mind, if it did last 120 years... For Noah, from the beginning of the promise until when the flood came, he still had to live longer in that delay than I'm going to have to live. At least I hope I don't live 120 years. If I'm up here in 120, well, 70 years, you just sort of take me out behind the barn and bury me or something, all right? But, because I won't leave, that's going to be a problem. Now... may build a wall here and another pulpit in front of me for the next guy, but I'll still be behind that. All right? So this delay, as you see. And, but we believe, we know that this judgment is coming. And we're living our lives knowing that, informed by that, that this judgment really is coming. Jesus goes on. He talks about being wise in one of his parables. And he says, watch therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour. You know the parable of the talents. And at the end of all that, the one servant who did not use the talents faithfully, Jesus said, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He speaks of a division between sheep and goats. And of them, he says, truly I say to you, did, uh, uh, did not you do it unto the least of these You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Apostle Paul, as he spoke of Jesus, had his sermons, his sharing, what he told people about Jesus, informed by this very 
judgment which is to come. In fact, when he was talking to a group of people who weren't believers in Athens at all weren't believers, not even uh, people of the old covenant, he spoke to them like this. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, he says, he says, if you want to know about God, and these people didn't know about God, you remember. In Athens, they had this statue, and at the bottom of the statue, it, it was a memorial to the unknown God. That was Paul's cue. He says, you don't know anything about God, so let me tell you about God. So he begins to tell them about God. And very early on in his telling them about God, he says he's fixed a day. And you need to understand this so that you'll repent. You'll turn away from your ignorance and you'll turn to worshiping the true God that I'm going to tell you about. But he says he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, this very Jesus. And that fits exactly with what Jesus said. When Jesus was walking around on the earth, he says, my father has given all judgment to me. And therefore I will judge. And so the apostles saying, this is the one, this Jesus, who's risen from the dead. Uh, we know this uh, fact of judgment from our study of Hebrews. Um, one of the key verses uh, in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. The author of Hebrews writes, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's sure. It's certain. Because God is holy. And therefore, any who come before him are evaluated by him, are judged by him according to holiness. But it's really true that no one really expects this. In fact, one of the judgment scenes in the book of Revelation, I think, and you'll understand what I mean by this, I think it was written for Americans. It was obviously written for everyone. But it really fits us because of the great surprise, and not only the great surprise of the judgment, the great sorrow that's involved. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. And I haven't got time to walk you all the way through the book of Revelation, but, but there's various looks at the final judgment. Okay? It doesn't start and move uh, uh, linearly, uh, the book of Revelation doesn't, but it kind of rules. Uh, and it gives you a, a look and a look and a look and a look, all of the same kinds of things. And it gives you a number of looks at the final judgment. And this is one of those looks. And this is a, a look at, at judgment upon Babylon, the city of evil that's against God and all of that. And he singles out the key people in that culture that would have been known kings, merchants, and shipmasters, very important, all of them, for the commerce and the well-being and the protection of, 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 of the people. Verse 9 says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, that is, with this evil city, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Not only are they going to be surprised that it's being judged, but they're going to look at that and say, Everything we held to, everything we believed in, everything we worked for, everything that satisfies is just going up in smoke. And the sadness must be overwhelming to them. 
they never really expected it. And then in verse 15, or verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. It's like everything that we live for is gone. We, we, we put everything into this and now it's just, it's just gone. We never, we never expected this. Verse Middle of verse 17, And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose traders on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. They didn't expect any of this. They had put their whole life in this. And now it was, it was just gone. I see the same thing is true today. No matter what people think about judgment, they're not really thinking about this. They're not really thinking that's going to happen. Oh, maybe far off. Maybe you Christians are right. Maybe, maybe far off, but it really won't affect me. Oh, yes. Well, see, if we, if we build our lives upon a false truth, upon a false faith, thinking that something's real and it isn't, and it goes up in smoke, the surprise will be great. The grief will be humongous. And then the reflection back that life has been utterly wasted. And you see, that's the least of it. Because then judgment comes. You wonder, don't you, what the people in Noah's day were thinking as the floodwaters began to rise. And there eventually would be no place to go. I don't even have a category in my brain for what that looks like. Maybe images of the tsunami as it came. I'm not I'm not saying that was the judgment of God, don't go there, but just as terms of, of what that would look like. The fear, the reflection of life, how quickly that would take place. I don't know. But you see, that's the same thing for us as it was with Noah, that's my point. And we need to live with that same c- conviction. Evidence, just, just like this, the far-off flood was more real to Noah than the shows of life around him. Therefore, he could stand all of the jibes and gave himself to a course of life which was sheer folly unless the future was real. You see, we're crazy, people. To live our lives thinking judgment is coming if judgment's not coming. But it's sheer folly to dismiss it if it is. But you see, not only are we convinced judgment is coming, we're convinced that Jesus is our ark. Right? We're convinced that God has given to us a way of salvation. We're convinced that He is the very one. Now, we haven't seen Him. It's still faith. It's still the evidence of things not seen. I mean, there's this thing in us. That's why I began our service by reminding us of the witness of the Spirit within us. As it affirms this word. Don't you ever wonder why it is when you pick up the Bible and read about Jesus, you go, yes. And other people pick up the Bible and read about Jesus and go, that's nonsense. Do you think it's because you're smarter than they are? Do you think it's because you're holier than they are? There's a witness of the Spirit in us that says yes to that. And why do you have it and they don't? I don't know. It's God's deal and... I'm quite happy to have that witness. And I'll stop there. But it's the witness of the Spirit, you see, within us. We go, yes, Jesus is the very one. Some had seen Jesus. The Apostle John writes in his first epistle, that which we've seen with our eyes, we've touched with our hands, we've heard with our ears. 
The Apostle Peter writes about the time when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was shown in his glory. We've seen his glory. The Apostle John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. So some had seen it. Well, I haven't. Not in that same sense. But even those that had seen his glory face to face when he died on the cross, they didn't go with Jesus where Jesus went as his blood covered their sins. They didn't see that. They just saw a man dying on the cross. They saw great evidence that that took place afterwards because he rose from the dead and came back and said, this is what I did. And the reason I could do that was because I had no sin of my own. So I was the unblemished one, just like the scripture has been saying all along. I was the unblemished one. And therefore, since I was unblemished, I was free to go after I paid for your sins, those sins for which I died. So there's evidence there, but but they didn't see it. It's still faith believing. That's why the Apostle Peter says, that though you don't see him, you love him. Because you're receiving the salvation of your souls. And you know that. Jesus is our ark. You see, we face the same trouble that, that Noah did. Not only do people in, in his day didn't want to believe about, didn't want, didn't want to believe there was real judgment, they didn't really want to believe about this ark either. And people in our day don't really believe this judgment, nor that they believe that Jesus is the salvation of our souls. You see, one of Noah's most wonderful responses to all of this in God was that he received it. He believed it. And he built the ark and got in when the rain started to come. He received it. He looked around and said, there's only two ways to escape this flood judgment. One is to tread water longer than any man has ever treaded water. Or to get in something that floats. Same is true here, you see. The problem that we face is unholy people and a holy God. And there's only two ways to escape that. One is to be perfectly holy all the time. Or two... Get into someone who is perfectly holy, who covers you. And though, so we believe in Jesus, that he is our salvation, that he is holy, and thus we enter into him by faith. His blood forgives, his life brings righteousness, and we are in him. He is our ark as much as the ark was for Noah to save him from the flood. Jesus, Jesus is ours. But you know, that as we wrap our lives around that, our culture doesn't believe, not only does our culture not believe in Jesus, but our culture rebels against the fact that there is only one way. That's always been true. I mean, every generation has rebelled against Christ. But in our generation particularly, it's a bit different, I think. In previous generations, what we had was this clash of one ways. 
If it wasn't the Christian way, then it was the Muslim way. If it wasn't the Muslim way, then it was the Buddhist way. If it wasn't the Buddhist way, it was this way or that way or the Jewish way, some way. Everybody had their way and they were competing one against the other as to which was the right way. But today, it's quite different. People say there isn't any way that could be the one way. And if there was, we could never really know it. Because who are we to interpret? Who are we to interpret history? Who are we to interpret truth? Who are we to say? None of us could say, this is one, the way. And so you see, they just dismiss Christianity out of hand because of the claim that this is the way. And of course, you and I say about that, I didn't say it was the only way. God said it was the only way. Jesus said it was the only way. See, no, I didn't have to deal with this. There was an ark. And there were his wings, his hands, his arms to tread water. For us, there's Christ or ourselves. So Noah's response to all this, the author of Hebrews says, verse 7, Hebrews 11, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. You see, because he believed, he followed God. Because he believed, he followed God's instructions. Because he believed, he built this ark. And the scripture said this faith affected him, not only in what he did, but, but how he felt about it, if you will. It says he did all of this in reverent fear. I've been trying to get in the head of Noah to think what it must have been like to be the only person in that whole world to whom God has come and said, I'm going to save you and your family. I don't know what that would do to you. I suppose it could cause you to feel prideful for a little while until you ran into people who were smarter than you and all of that. Ran into people that seemed quite nice. Ran into people you couldn't figure out why God didn't tell them to build the ark. Maybe even people who had more tools than you did. Seem more prepared to do that, but it seemed to me that if I'm Noah, if I contemplate this whole scenario just a minute, it won't take me too long before I'm on my face before God saying, thank you. And I think I'd be thankful that he was going to spare me, but then I would look to my wife, and look to my children, look to other men's wives, other men's children, and realize, God's saving mine. And I think that would quiet your soul. And I think that would cause a sense of holy fear, as the NIV puts it. On the one hand, I think you'd just have goosebumps all the time that God was going to do this. But don't you see that that's how it is with us? I mean, Paul tries to lay that out in Ephesians, in chapter 1, for instance, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Other versions have it. Praise be to, our God and Father, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's worshiping. He's starting this whole thing of worship. And if you're reading this letter, you'd wonder, why is he breaking out in this worship in the beginning? 
You know, why is he saying, praise be, blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he goes on to explain why. He says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Go, all right, I can see that. Verse 4. Even as, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him, who have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in our wisdom and insight. And you begin to get the feeling that God has done something very special here, inexplicable. Why? You get the sense that as a believer in Christ, in the mystery of God's working, that he chose you before the foundations of the world to be in the ark, to be in Christ. And for all those that he chose to be in the ark, to be in Christ, he had a destination for you. For Noah, it was ultimately a destination of dry land, interestingly enough. For us, it's glory. He predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight. That he would see us holy and blameless. All that in love. And therefore, to get us there, all those in the ark, in Christ, he would redeem, he'd buy back from judgment, his own wrath. Now, I don't know what that does to you. But it quiets my soul. It puts me uh, on my face before God. I, I have no explanation for that. It leaves me with this reverent fear, or what one of our old hymns puts it, humble adoration. How great he is. And, and what that did for Noah was it moved him to worship, no doubt by praising, but also to worship by doing. Now we're saved by grace through faith. That's clear. There's no, no question about that. None of us is saved because of our own merit, our own good works and all of that. We know that. We're well versed in that. I mean, Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith in this, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know that. But you see, in knowing that, it should move us to reverent fear, to say, oh, yes. And that should then move us to arrange our whole lives around this truth. That yes, judgment is coming, but I'm safe in Christ. And what that should mean, therefore, is that we don't go out and build an ark, or we don't go out and make the way of our salvation, because we can't do that. It's already made for us in Christ. But it means then that we live this out in submission and humble obedience to God. Notice verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus before, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, first the grace, then the faith, 
and then the works. They follow one from the other. Wouldn't it have been rather silly for a person to come up to Noah and say, Hey, Noah, what do you believe? Well, I believe a flood's coming. Oh, yeah? Not only that, I believe that if I build an ark, I'll get in it with my family, we'll all be safe. And then if the person says, so what are you doing? He says, nothing. Well, are you going to build the ark? No. That's stupid. If you really believe it, why aren't you? And that's the very point, isn't it? If we believe judgment is coming, if we believe we're safe in Christ, shouldn't that quiet our souls? Shouldn't that place us before him in humble adoration and submission to him? And then shouldn't we say, since you're so right about judgment and since you're so right about the way of salvation, why wouldn't you be right about the way I'm to live my life? If I believe this and this, why wouldn't I follow you? The author of Hebrews goes on. I'm out of time. He doesn't say that, I say that. <laughs> but just like the author of Hebrews, I'm going to go on for just a minute. He says, By this, that is, living his life, building the ark, believing what he believed, he condemned the world. Amazing. And do you understand that's us too, very quickly? Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the Rome of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one of fragrance from death to death together a fragrance from life to life. You understand that when people would come around Noah, they would say, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Why? The judgment's coming. Really? Yes. And I believe if I get in this ark, I'll be saved from that. Well, if you believe, Noah, that a judgment is coming and the only way of salvation to be saved from that flood is through that ark, and if I'm not invited in the ark, what's that mean about me? Oh. And then when it all happened, you could see it take place. The course of our lives, Bill. You say, you believe in Jesus. Yes, what does that mean? Well, I believe I'm a sinner in the sight of God without hope except in his mercy. What does that mean? It means I'm going to go to hell when I die unless God is merciful to me because of my sin against him. But I believe in his mercy through Jesus Christ that he took my sins, he lived my life. Therefore, trusting in him, I believe I'm saved. Oh, then a person would think, what about me? You see, we're not building an ark for people to come and observe. But Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in you. You see, we should be, we should be, our hope should be as big as Noah's ark. Our hope should be as obvious as Noah's ark. When people walk into our houses, they have to see this ark of hope. When they see our lives, they have to see this ark of hope. 
And they had to bump into it and go, what's this doing here? How can you hope in the midst of life like this? How can you hope when I know your life? I know the trouble. I know the problems. I know your husband. I know your wife. I know your job. I know the economy. I know the war. I know your illness. I know all that. How can you still have hope in the midst of all of that? I'm bumping into this arc of hope. It's so huge. See, that's what we're to tell them about at that point. Because like Noah, we're heirs of righteousness. We've inherited, we've been given the righteousness of Christ. Judgment's coming. We're safe. Because of Christ, let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we'd live like Noah In fact, we can live in a way that Noah could only have dreamed of living. Because we have Christ up close and personal. The reality of his life, historically, he's come. So I pray for me, for us, that we would live like that. That our lives would be seasoned with the knowledge of real judgment coming. Yet, our, knowledge, our lives would be lived with the knowledge of Christ crucified, risen for our salvation. And that our hope would be in him. May it be as big as an ark. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> as you do, I remind you that we have elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that. Our Sunday school classes will be happening in about eight minutes. So get there quickly. So I'm not in trouble. The teachers, my apologies. The response to the benediction is, Christ is my Savior. Hallelujah. I wanted to say Christ is my ark, but that's not really biblical to put it that way. But you get the point. Christ is my Savior. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling, from drowning, from falling, and to present you blameless before His glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ is my Savior. Hallelujah.